You're listening to a sermon podcast from Paramount Church in Columbus, Ohio. To learn more, visit ParamountColumbus.com. Well, as always, it is my joy to invite you to join me in your copy of God's Word to our text for this morning, which is in the book of Revelation, Revelation 9, 1 through 12. Revelation chapter 9, verses 1 through 12. If you're just beginning to visit with us as our guest, we're grateful that you're here. We've been in the book of Revelation now for uh, eight chapters, and we'll continue on until July. And in July, we'll move into a topical series just for the weeks of July, in which we will think about how and why we love the Bible as a church. We'll even have one of those weeks as we share those preaching assignments, the privilege of having Pastor Dwayne Milioni, the lead pastor of Open Door Church in Raleigh, North Carolina, the sending church of our church from the very beginning as a church plant with us for one of those Sundays. And that'll be a, that'll be a wonderful thing for us in our church. But this morning, we're going to look at Revelation chapter 9, verses 1 through 12. I have entitled the message this morning, Life Under the Evil One. Now, I think that in this world and in the Word of God, we have no shortage of examples of Jesus Christ and his grace seeking and saving the lost. That is what keeps us going. That is what gives us hope. That is what strengthens us and makes us joyful Christians, knowing that Jesus is at work in the world. However, we also know that the reason that he is on his mission to seek and to save is because in this world and in the Word of God, we also have no shortage of stories about the work of the enemy under sin. You can look at the news almost any day, and you can see incredible, striking, tragic stories of the work of the enemy under sin in this world. You look at the news and you conclude to the question, how could someone do that? The only way is for someone to turn his back on God. So often, that is what I think when I see the things happening in our world. But I also saw, as we see in Scripture and other places, the striking contrast, even this week, as I followed, as many of you did, the, the horrific account of Uvalde School in Texas. And that tragedy happened, and then to see paired with that or contrasted with that, pastors in that town with a thousand people gathered together singing songs to Christ, calling out to him for help and hope, comforting each other with the word of God. Well, this morning we come to Revelation chapter 9 and we find again that these future, what we may call eschatological events, end times events, show us Hear the woes of living under the evil one, even today. As we have in other passages, looking forward to what God has planned and prepared for the future, we see an intensification, we see a reminder of the patterns that are happening even now. And so, in another way, this is helpful for us to look at the book of Revelation, not just to be able to talk about it with someone or look forward with some sense of confidence or knowledge, that's very important, but even to live our lives today. The evil one that we're referring to in Revelation chapter 9 and other places of the Bible, and certainly in this message, life under the evil one, is the one that we've referred to as Satan. 
who the Bible describes as a falling star. A careful reading of the Bible shows that Satan is the angel who rebelled against God and was cast out. But we also see as we read this text and many others that tell us about him, we are reminded of the importance of understanding the enemy for our own lives today. That we ought not to take him lightly. He would love for you to take him lightly. In fact, he masquerades as an angel of light so that you will take him lightly. You will misunderstand what he is about. You will let down your guard. But we want to know more about him so that we can trust Christ all the more. And so we will see this morning what I think is the most important point and the place to begin, and that is with God, to recognize that this enemy of ours, now, then, and into the future, is subjected to God's control. As we see, what is life like under the evil one? We'll notice three truths today from this text. First, that life is a life of darkness. Second, that life is a life under torment. And third, that life is a life facing destruction. But we do want to begin with that important truth of just where does this enemy stand? What can he do? Who is in control? And while so often we may look at the world and wonder who is in control, we're reminded by the word of God, especially here, that God is in control. That even this enemy, even this evil one, is subjected to God's control. Notice this as we consider the life in darkness that is lived under the evil one by noticing that Satan is given a key. Verse 1, Then the fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star from heaven which had fallen to the earth, and the key to the shaft of the abyss was given to him. This is both terrifying and comforting. We have seen that kind of pairing throughout the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation is not pulling any punches. It's not hiding anything from us. It's revealing this picture of what the the coming world will be like, what is really going on in the forces of evil in the world and the coming judgment upon sin, which we have been spared by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we carry away from it both this sobriety it works in us while also this comfort that God is in control. This is comforting to me because can you imagine if this first verse started by omitting that little bit about a key being given to him? Can you imagine if this evil one that we read about in Scripture, this evil one that we have all been in some distant way, I think, tempted by, this one who is the accuser of the brethren, if he in fact could, and he cannot, do anything that he wants. Why don't you think about it this way? Could you imagine someone who was captivated by an evil heart, and according to the power of that person reigning free, that that person could, by some power of his own, bring about in the real world any of his imaginary evil, like if he could be in a dream and he could dream up the most evil things, but they wouldn't stay in the dream. They would come out into the world. How terrifying would that be? Well, that is not the evil one who is in this world because we know that he is subjected to the God who must give him the key. Satan, as others have put it, is like a dog on a chain. And the Lord himself is the one who's holding the chain. 
And therefore, we're comforted by knowing that very fact. And as long as he doesn't let go of the chain and we believe that he won't, and we don't get too close, then all can be well. But nevertheless, we do not want to take this enemy, this evil one, lightly. Because we know what he is like according to the word of God. Notice what it says about him in verse 1, that the key to the shaft of the abyss was given to him. This word in the Greek that is translated abyss, it means the depths of the netherworld. It's the home of death and the dead. He is given in this future time the key to the shaft of the abyss to unlock it as if to unleash under God's sovereign control and wisdom death and death into the world. That's why we read in verse 2, he opened the shaft of the abyss and smoke ascended out of the shaft like the smoke of a great furnace. So much smoke that the sun in the vision and the air were darkened from the smoke of the shaft. John sees this fallen star open the abyss and smoke rises out of it so heavy that it blots out the light of the sun. The word of God in all places, but especially here, is trying to engage our imagination. It's giving us vivid pictures to spell out the serious underlying spiritual truths that we need to know for our own souls. It is telling us that if we were to live our lives under the evil one, that will be a life in darkness. Because this enemy delights to release darkness into the world. And in this case, in this picture, so much that it would blot out the sun. Take just that picture and think about what God is communicating to us about the seriousness of this enemy, this evil one, the seriousness about this coming day of judgment which is happening under his control, God's control, with this evil one being the agent. Think about what would happen. We only know somewhat scientifically what would happen, and that's helpful to us if the sun was blotted out. What if there could be something literally in the world today that would cover the sun, it would blacken the sky so that no light could come in? Well, it takes about eight minutes for the light of the sun to reach us. So if that were to happen all at once, there would be eight minutes left of daylight. And then as finally that, fi- that last light reaches us, it would be darkness. Within a few days, we would feel the temperature start dropping. Within two months, the surface of the ocean would freeze. Think about how serious this picture is. It's communicating to us seriousness. Capture that picture again from the place of death a deadly darkness rises to cover the world with an insidious darkness. The Bible routinely gives us this kind of dichotomy of understanding dark and light, of understanding the contrast between the two, that darkness, it blinds those who are underneath it. That is what makes life under the evil one. That's what makes our unbelieving life prior to coming to Christ so very serious. It is not as though we just go about our lives. Maybe we're Christians, maybe we're not. In the end, it shakes out. In fact, living under the darkness of the evil one is a blindness. It's why so many unbelievers, it's why you and I, prior to Christ, did not know we were lost. We didn't know where our life was going. 
We were blinded by the spiritual darkness of this enemy. And therefore, the word of God is warning. The word of God is declaring that this enemy is about darkness and life under him is a life in darkness. But yet, as I said, we're pairing together both the terrifying picture and the comfort, and we continually come back. We must always come back to the gospel because the gospel reminds us that by the sheer grace of God, by no work of our own, by no merit of our own, by no power of our own, by no foresight of our own, by no ingenuity of our own, by no righteousness of our own, by grace alone, we have passed from darkness and into light. He has called us out, as we read in John 3, into the light, and everything about us is exposed, and we find a God who is gracious and merciful to us. He is the one who becomes the the son of the coming kingdom in the new heavens and the new earth. There's no need for the sun, but the world is not full of darkness. It's lit up by the sun himself. That is a future reality that we have begun to experience now once you see that apart from Christ, you are in darkness. But as soon as you come to Christ, as soon as you are transferred from, as as we read in Colossians, the domain of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved son, all of a sudden, it's divine light flooding into your life. Therefore, we should be people of gospel light. This is why we are talking so much about keeping the grace of God, keeping the brilliant glory of Christ front and center in our lives at all times, in all relationships, in all of the things that we do. We must remember the gospel. Not because it saves us, it does. Not because it frees us, it does. But because it illuminates everything in our lives. It is the light by which we live and will live forever. But make no mistake, if perhaps you are or someone you love is living under the evil one, know that is a life lived in darkness. And that's why we want to be people of gospel light. We want to shine the light of the gospel as ambassadors of Christ into the lives of other people. And that's what we call evangelism. Evangelism is good newsing people. It's telling them good news. But what are you telling them? What are you giving to them when you tell them this message of Christ who lived, died, and rose again to save sinners like us? What are you giving them? You're giving them light. God is bringing light to them that it might illuminate their hearts and their lives so that finally their eyes would be opened and they would see. And they would see Christ for who he is. Because anyone who sees Christ for who he is comes to him. Everyone. No one sees Christ for who he is and then turns away, not really seeing him. If he gives you the gift of sight, if he shines his gospel light into your heart, you're in. You're coming. And he will keep you. But that's not all that we see about this life lived under the evil one. The second truth is that it is, in one way or another, a life of torment. 
what do you think happens next? If you have not read ahead, and I honestly hope that you have, I hope that every maybe Saturday night or during the week, that's the advantage of expositional preaching through verse by verse through books of the Bible, you know what's coming. You can read ahead. But what do you think is going to happen next? I think it's obvious. The shaft of the abyss is open. Darkness is flooding out of this pit of death and evil itself will inflict its painful power. And that is what happens next. Out of the smoke comes locusts. Again, it's another, it's another uh, reminder or look back at the plagues in the Old Testament of judgment at other times in God's redemptive history. Locusts coming out. But just as that is a repeating kind of pattern looking forward, remember that this time, all of this that's happening in this tribulational period in history is an intensification, and you'll see it here almost like no other, because these locusts are not ordinary locusts. They are a terrifying kind of locust. Listen to the words. Verse 3, then out of the smoke came locusts upon the earth. And again, we're reminded of God's control And his granting power, power was given to them as the scorpions of the earth have power. They were told not to hurt the grass of the earth, nor any green thing, nor any tree, but only the people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. Only those who have not been marked by Christ, that his stamp is upon them, They are then to go and hurt them. They were not permitted to kill anyone, but to torment for five months. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings a person. These are not ordinary locusts. Notice their appearance. They are armed like scorpions. You you know what a scorpion is. It's an insect. It kind of looks like a lobster with a big crooked tail on the back and a stinger. These are shaped like horses. They're crowned like kings. They have men's faces, maybe communicating that they are, they are intelligent. They're crafty. They know what they're doing. They have the hair of women. Uh, it's unclear what that means, but it could mean that there is a kind of seductive nature to them. They have teeth like lions. They're armor-plated They're winged. Their sound is a deafening sound like chariots trampling on the ground. These are not ordinary locusts. Not only do they not have an ordinary appearance, they don't have an ordinary power and purpose. It's heightened, intensified. And we read here very clearly, they are given over to harm people. Not grass like ordinary locusts, but with scorpion stingers to torture for five months. I think that it's interesting that scorpions are used here. It's the Greek word scorpios. Scorpions are interesting because unlike some other stinging insects or creatures like bees and wasps, which can only sting once, scorpions can sting over and over and over again. I was looking up online to learn some more about scorpions. One of the delights of preparing to preach is learning new things, and I found that the most painful scorpion is the Arizona bark scorpion, that when it stings you once or more, it provides something that feels like electrical jolts, though rarely killing anyone. It's well beyond a 
a level four pain level on the scale, there was someone named Justin Schmidt who decided that he would create a pain scale of stinging insects. And so he had himself stung by all different kinds of insects and then rated what the pain was like, one through four. These would be nowhere near Justin's scale, way over. Think about the power, the control, the fierceness of these creatures. But be reminded, when we see something terrifying like this, that it is God's control that purposes them. And notice what they're purposed for in this coming time. They're purposed purposed for judgment, but judgment short of death. This punishment is showing God's retribution for sin. This is real punishment. Now we have to admit, like, though not as much as probably people out in the world who are unfamiliar with the God of the Bible, still we read this and it's hard to get our own minds around. It doesn't seem to match quite right the God that we often like to think about. It's foreign to many people that God could be in this way incredibly destructive and punishing. It's something that we don't want to think about. We want to cast that away. We'd like to replace it with a one-sided view of Jesus or God the Father or the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is what they're like, but they're, they're not too scary. It's not too terrifying. They're not too serious about sin, but serious. And we read this, and it's a wake-up call for us. Hopefully, that's not as much of a wake-up call for us. Hopefully, we are continually being driven into the nature of God, better understanding in his word, his supremacy and his excellence and his, his ultimate righteousness and glory and power and seriousness about sin. But we have the ability to see this in God for a unique reason. We don't know that God is serious about sin simply because we read about him in scripture judging people in the world. We don't know that he's serious about sin simply because the words of the Bible say God is serious about sin. We know that God is serious about sin because he punished his own son for us. There's nothing more serious about sin than that. That you would give your own son and put him under the penalty of ultimate wrath for sinners like us, for your enemies. That is seriousness about sin. So hopefully this is not too much of a surprise to us. But nevertheless, we don't want to miss the point of this text. It is showing off for us Not only God's seriousness about sin, but the devil's seriousness about torment. The danger that is in this evil one who wishes to work us woe. Listen to what 1 Peter 5, 6 through 8 says, and connect it here so that we capture the real meaning and the reason why this would be told to us. Why would we be warned about this evil one unless, unless we needed to be? Listen to what it says. Therefore, humble yourselves 
under the mighty hand of God so that he may exalt you at the proper time, having cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. But then it goes into something that sounds dark. It's interesting that those two things are connected. You're talking to people who are full of anxieties and being told to cast your anxiety on Christ who cares for you and be careful that you do that because if you don't, you won't be of sober spirit. You won't be on the alert and you won't remember that your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. That is not accidental. That's not just written in the Bible to be cute. God doesn't do cute. It's written there for our instruction. It's written there for our warning. And what that tells us is the same thing that I said to our men and to myself at the men's summit two weeks ago on a Friday night. Don't let your guard down. Though you are secure in Christ, you are not safe. And I say the same thing to you. I say the same thing to me. Though you are secure in Christ, you are not safe. Because even now, the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And as pastors, one of the most grievous thoughts and realities is he will devour some no matter how healthy, no matter how strong, no matter how biblical, no matter how prayerful, he is going to devour some. It's all the more reason for us to heighten our alertness, not in fear, not in trembling, but in trust, that we trust Christ, that we cast our cares on him, that we look to him to care for us because he does. Last Sunday, we were incredibly grieved by this very reminder of safeness. And it came in the form of an independent report about our denomination. The report has revealed that there have been instances of sexual abuse in particular among some of our churches, and even a practice among the higher echelons of our administrative offices to silence or to intimidate or to ignore victims who want to raise these issues. And for some reason, in a foolish effort to protect the gospel or to minimize liability, as though the gospel needs to be protected from sin, that's why it exists. But even as this report has come out, our pastors and many others are grateful for this report. Because this report, this investigation, was compelled by a near unanimous decision by our many churches to request that that, invitation, that investigation would happen. And we're grateful because it not only reveals key ways that we will fight better against sin in the church, in our churches, and care for victims in a more Christ-like way, but it also while grieved, gives us another reminder that in this world, in this flesh, we are not yet safe from sin and we must stay close to our Savior. 
Do you know why we responsively read doctrinal questions and answers? Because we are not safe. Do you know why we preach verse by verse through books of the Bible or pull from the text of Scripture the life and the the comfort and the help that we need? Because we're not safe. We need Christ all the more. But it is the reality that often we forget. We let our guard down and we don't notice our enemy who prowls around like a roaring lion and then torments us. Life under the evil one is a life of torment. It is a life in darkness. But finally, it is a life facing destruction. The word of God is being so serious with us. It's grabbing our attention in every way possible, perhaps none even like this. It gives this evil one a name. It shows us what he is about by naming him. Look at verse 11. They have his king over them, the angel of the abyss. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon. And in the Greek, he has the name Apollyon. The first woe has passed. Behold, two woes are still coming after these things. This fallen star tormenting those not sealed by Christ is called Abaddon. That's a word that means destruction or ruin. He is the angel prince of the infernal regions. He is the minister of death. That's what the language, that's what the name is communicating to us. That's why names are important in the Bible. What's in a name? A name is to stand for for the person. This person is bent on destruction. That is his name. We named our kids. We tried to think of names that would give them special meaning, something that would remind them of, of Christ and the truth. Hannah means grace. Sophia means wisdom. Josiah means God supports and heals. Ezra means help. Ella Grace (laughs) means God of grace. That's what we need. I got my name from a family tradition, Rushton. It actually means Garden of Weeds. (laughs) But this name, this name is no joke. This is a person named destruction. This is a person named minister of death. Think about how serious is the torment of this person. Going back even to verse 5, they were permitted to kill, not to kill anyone, but to torment for five months. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings a person. And in those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die and death will flee from them. The appearance of the locusts was like horses prepared for battle. On their heads appeared crowns like gold. Their faces were like human faces. They had hair like the hair of women and teeth like the teeth of lions. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron. And the sound of their wings was like the sound of chariots and many horses rushing to battle. They have tails like scorpions and stings. And in their tails is the power to hurt people for five months. No wonder his name is destruction. Do you need to hear anything more? than to have a proper fear of this enemy. He, Satan, is a liar. He is a destroyer. He is on a seek and destroy mission. But we have good news because we know someone else 
we know someone who is called our Savior, who is Yeshua, Hamashiach, the anointed Redeemer of the world. He is the one who came on a seek and save mission, and he has put us on that mission with him. And that's why we are grateful. We read texts like this for the seal upon their foreheads. Because those who had the seal were were protected. They were cared for. They continue to be ambassadors. And that's what we want to do this morning. We want to seek others. We want to seek others because we have been transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of of, of his beloved son. We have been given the light of Christ into our lives. And therefore, we want to seek others. Friends, I want you to know that these prophecies are meant to awaken you. They're meant to awaken our resolve against the world, the flesh, and the devil, especially here in this place where so many things, in spite of the bad, seem to go well. We just kind of tool around town. We just kind of go about our days. For the most part, for many of us, things are pretty good. And then we forget. We don't watch over our shoulder. We don't keep our eyes on Christ. But we must We must increase our joy in Christ. We must increase our focus on him. And that's what we want to do. This morning, we have this wonderful opportunity to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. And we want this to be a a means, as it is, a means of grace in our lives to comfort us and to strengthen us as we take it together. So I'm going to uh, invite those who will help dismiss our rose to come up, or, or actually we'll pass it around, to come and pass the elements around. And then we'll take the Lord's Supper together. But my encouragement to all of us is that we carry what we've heard into this. What you've heard about this enemy and the life under him is that we have a different life to live. We have a different reason to live. When we take the Lord's Supper, we're taking it knowing the one who has lived and died for us. And we take it in hope and comfort that he will care for us to the very end. And we want that to be true this morning. Father, we pray this morning in particular that you would help us to keep our eyes on you, that you would remind us of your incredible grace toward us, and that you would uh, keep us close and clean, and you would keep us on guard. We know that we are secure in you, but we also know that we have a very real enemy. And we pray that you would protect us, help us to protect one another, and to do it with your good news. We pray now as we take the Lord's Supper together that you would work your grace in our hearts and that you would encourage us in our faith in you. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.